everyone. Thanks for joining us again on the Reality 2.0 podcast. I'm Catherine Druckman. I am, as always, with Doc Searles, who Howdy. you all know, but I am also today with somebody you might not know named Damien Real and his cohort, Noah Rubin. They have a very interesting project, actually, and I'm going to link to your uh, TEDx Minneapolis talk in our description. They are trying to fight the good fight with regard to music copyright. Their project is All the Music, and you can find it at allthemusic.info. And before I go uh, into any more detail and screw it up, I'm going to hand it over uh, so you can tell us a little bit more about what you're working on. Great. I uh, handed it over to Damien, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> good, good afternoon. This is uh, Damien Real, and I'm really thrilled to be on here. And uh, my colleague Noah and I have in- embarked on this project, which um, is really a, a, a labor of love for both of us. We're both musicians and we're both technologists. And uh, in addition, I'm also a lawyer. So uh, this kind of is in the sweet spot of uh, ikigai is a Japanese term of things that uh, you love, uh, things that you get paid for, and things that you're good at, and things that the world needs. Uh, the middle of that Venn diagram is something, a Japanese concept called ikigai. Uh, so this music uh, melody copywriting thing is really in the center of that for me. Uh, so uh, a brief overview of what it is, uh, is essentially we have taken mathematically, uh, every melody that both has existed and hasn't yet existed and brute forced it. So we have uh, written to disc every melody that's ever been and every melody that hasn't yet been, but is mathematically possible, written it to disc. And as soon as it's written to disc is copyrighted. And Noah and I have placed that in the public domain uh, to help songwriters being able to uh, write their music without fear of uh, being sued for copyright infringement uh, for accidentally using the same melody as someone else, even if they haven't heard that other person's song. It, uh, this is Doc. It, it strikes me as like a game of Battleship. Remember Battleship? Of course. Which is, you know, you, you play it on paper. You've got this, this great grid in your talk where you have the, the, the green spaces, which are the ones that are not yet occupied by a melody, and the red spaces, which are, the, which are really the landmines. They, you call them landmines, but they're they're where the battleship gets hit, right? If you park your battleship over there. And it actually reminds me a little bit of, of the, the term, which you'll be more familiar with than I am, of submarine patents, right? Where um, you've already got, you don't know that you've stepped on somebody's patent until they some, suddenly come up to the surface and say, hey, I've got a patent here. I don't That's know if exactly there's an analogous right. issue with, with copyright where somebody's sitting there like a submarine waiting for somebody to step on it. I think it, what usually happens is, um, you know, the chiffons recognize, or somebody who owns the rights to the chiffon song uh, recognizes that George Harrison's My Sweet Lord is too similar. And then the most famous uh, case like that takes place, which I thought was totally bogus, by the way. I'm old enough to remember <laughs> both of those. Um, but but you're actually kind of staking out fresh territory here. I, um, how, how, how are you? I mean, there's so many questions about it. Um, but I guess the, the first one might be how how are you looking for this to play out in the world? It's four or five years from now. What has happened in the music business? How is this being put to use? What are the new arguments happening in the legal sphere? There are a lot of directions you could go with that. 
Sure. And I think the first direction I'd like to go is essentially what you're saying, this, uh, this idea that the light bulb turns on to realize, oh, this song does sound like that other song uh, in a very submarine kind of way. Um, I, I likened it to, um, you know, the, when people first realize, musicians often know that uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is the same as Ba Ba Black Sheep Have You Any Wool, which is the same as A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, each of those songs, these three songs, have the very same melody. Uh, but when you sit and tell that to somebody on the street, they, they, are, they say, oh my gosh, I've lived for 50 years. I've never known that that's the same melody. Uh, and the reason you don't know it is because they're completely different songs. And so when you talk about the chiffons and you talk about uh, you know, George Harrison, I think that the realization is the aha, also known as the gotcha moment. And that's where the, 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 you know, the chiffons, someone related to that team realized, oh, Gotcha. Yeah, you, you happen to use the same one as I do. Therefore, you're going to uh, go down. So at any rate, so uh, what Noah and I are really trying to do is trying to eliminate those gotcha moments, especially for songs that A, have never been heard before, or B, maybe have been heard and forgotten about and living somewhere in the subconscious. Uh, so we really want to be able to be a resource on our project to be able to help uh, people that find themselves in the untenable position of the current state of the law to have to prove a negative, saying that I have never heard this song before in my life. Uh, and how does one prove that one has never heard a song before in one's life? That's thing number one. And thing number two is how does one, even uh, if one has heard a song, say 20 years ago, how does one prove that one was not thinking of that song when making their new song? So when you ask, how do we hope this plays out? We hope to be a resource for people in that position to be able to say, you know, music. I take that back. Melodies are mathematical, as Noah and I have demonstrated. We have brute forced every melody uh, for uh, an octave up and then 12 notes across. Uh, we have mathematically exhausted every one of those. So we'd like for lawyers and judges and juries to say, you know, rather than these two songs sounding similar being the result of someone purposefully stealing music, maybe is the result of only so many notes out there to be able to do. And maybe you landed in the battleship board in the same spot as another person. So how, how did you discover the ones that were already occupied? So th that's a fine question. We, uh, we have brute forced all of them. So whether uh, already occupied or not already occupied, uh, you know that uh, the occupied spots are something that perhaps the Music Modernization Act's database uh, that they're building right now um, perhaps that's something that they will want to quantify, which melodies are actually contained in that, but I think probably not. And probably the reason that they're not going to quantify it either is because how does one uh, be able to say, here are all the melodies in my song? You know, here's every guitar riff. Here's every little nuanced ooh that I sing. Uh, there's, mm -hmm. there's really um, being able to quantify what is read on our data set is really difficult. Uh, and certainly for the entire uh, copyrighted, currently copyrighted music, uh, even being able to quantify which songs are still in copyright or not, that's a hard enough task on its own. Uh, so then try to add on top of that the complexity of being able to say, here are all the melodies for all the songs that are currently in copyright. Uh, that is a task that we're arguing isn't even necessary because uh, uh, under two scenarios, uh, scenario one, we get copyright in everything we've created. Uh, and then put it in the public domain. Um, that's scenario one. Scenario two is that we uh, do not get copyright in what we've done because what we've, we've done is mathematical and fact-based. And because fact-based, 
and because unoriginal, therefore uncopyrightable. And so we think that under this scenario too, we also win because then it's essentially proving our case that melodies are math, which are factual, which are uncopyrightable. So you, you, you have, it's, it's interesting. You've, you've sort of looked at two different ways this could play out. Um, and you've sort of, and, and in fact, in, on this list that we're uh, both on, uh, you mentioned that these are arguments in the alternative where you're kind of basically presenting both. This could go either way. And the context of which you're looking to sort of like develop consciousness in the marketplace of both the problems that attend to having old copyright law in a digital world and the practical concerns of an artist who might want to uh, make sure that whatever they've come up with is safe in some way. I guess that, that's close enough. Uh, that's, I, that's exactly right. Yeah. And we, we really, these arguments in, all, in the alternative are something that lawyers are very familiar with and, and lawyers and judges get that right away. But I think to the general public, it seems, uh, it seems odd that I would argue on the one hand, it is copyrightable and then we put it in the public domain. And then on the other hand, it's not copyrightable. Therefore, it's free for everyone. That kind of the dichotomy of, of that uh, is kind of hard for non-lawyers to be able to get their head around. Uh, but it is a very common legal concept. And just because I argue one doesn't mean that I've seated ground on the other. Uh, but so I get it straight. You, you have put these in the public domain though, right? You've taken this, this that's corpus. Right. That's right. And that's right. We've, the public domain. That's right. We've taken the entire, uh, the entirety of uh, the, all the music work. We have then designated them creative commons zero. Uh, so at, at least uh, to the extent that the law uh, recognizes creative Commons zero as designating for the public use. Uh, we have done that. I, I wish I had a tape of this, but back when I worked in radio 10,000 years ago, uh, we did a joke a ad for all the world's most beautiful music all at once. <laughs> and, and basically <laughs> overdubbed an infinite amount of crap. And it sounded like a car crash. Anyway. Uh, yeah, and, and, and strangely, if you took all of the, um, each of the melodies that we've done, certainly if you played them all together, it would sound like a car crash. But each of the <laughs> melodies that we have, uh, because they are our, uh, at least one of the data sets is the diatonic scale, um, every one of our melodies sounds like something that could be in the real world. That's interesting. So I, I, was, I had a question about the chromatic scale, because you could be going there, and there's lots of music that, that's less popular, but there are a few that have accidentals in them and so forth, where... Mm -hmm where you, you know, you drop out of the scale and go to, you know. That's right. And we, that's why we actually did the chromatic scale as well. So the, we talked earlier about eight okay. up and then uh, 12 across. Uh, for the chromatic scale, we did tw uh, 13 up. So the 12 tone scale plus the 13th on the top. And then we went 10 across. Uh, so that okay. is in our data set as well. So yeah, we cover jazz, we cover classical, we cover key changes, uh, really anything. So, so there's something sorry, very interesting to me about this. So uh, without the benefit of the visuals, unfortunately, the people listening um, can't picture it, but, but imagine you have this grid and imagine, like Doc says, it's a battleship uh, playing board or mine, the game Minesweeper, let's say, um, and you have all these spaces that are already taken, which leaves you with a bunch of green spaces that are not. And what I'm wondering, do you see this as a resource? Let's say I'm, I'm writing a jingle. I'm looking for something. I, I want to protect my, I want something in the public domain. I want something that's, that's not going to... Um, come back to haunt me later legally. Do you see this as a resource where somebody could age a library of public domain melodies that aren't taken? Do you see people using it that way? 
That's a really good question. And uh, you, you talked about the talk and uh, I, I would recommend it. Maybe, maybe your listeners could hit pause on the podcast and yes, be able to watch the listen. TED talk. I, know. It's only I, yeah. I wanted to say that. I, I, in fact, when we, when we publish it, we might even say, okay, stop now before you do this and, uh, yes. and, and watch the talk. It's, it's very really short. Great. It's a and, very, very engaging. Talk, I, I got to say. Thank you. And, and so I, I think that uh, it'll make the rest of this podcast more enjoyable because I think they'll uh, be able to easily, more easily visualize the green spaces and the red spaces and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I will say, so to answer your question, um, I don't know if uh, our data set is a really good resource for someone who wants a public domain item to be able to pull from. Because uh, like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we haven't designated red spots or green spots. Mm -hmm. So really we haven't at this point, and nor do I, I anticipate that we will ever really say this is an open spot. Uh, okay. Because who knows whether it's open or not? And you know, um, I talked in the uh, in the TED talk, TEDx talk, about uh, red spots being taken, green spots being open. But uh, after the talk, I actually had a realization that, that there's a third element, and that is uh, Beethoven's Fifth, for example, is uh, was copyrighted at a point and now is in the public domain. So Beethoven's Fifth is somewhere on that data set, and so maybe that's a gray spot. Uh, you're thinking of a third color. Uh, maybe that is a spot that is uh, was copyrighted, has entered into the public domain, uh, and so maybe those spots would be what you're talking about. That maybe I can try to find those those gray spots uh, that have lapsed into the public domain. Um, and but there's a big yeah. question that has actually safe. been. Yeah, I'm saying uh, go ahead. They're made safe, I guess, in a way. That, that's right. Made safe, perhaps. But there's a debate going on right now that Doc and I are on a, a list mm -hmm. as to whether if something is public domain, can someone essentially take it out of the public domain by creating a new work on top of it? And the way that this plays out is in two ways. Oh. Way number one is uh, is that you know someone has never heard Beethoven's Fifth or you know substitute a, a obscure 16th century uh, song that they haven't heard, but they they happen to write the same thing as that thing. So that scenario one is, can I get copyright on something that has lapsed in the public domain? That's thing number one. Thing number two is, can someone go into our data set and be able to look at uh, Noah's and Damien's All the Music data set, find a melody that they think is good, and then record it? Uh, and then by recording it, um, does that take it necessarily from what some might argue is an unoriginal, uncopyrightable element? And then does it magically become copyrightable because a human was able to make a recording of it? Uh, so those two say, ways that maybe something that is not copyrightable, either public domain or uh, arguably in the data set, uh, can it be transformed into something that is copyrightable uh, by virtue of somebody recording it? So you mentioned in the talk also that you've opened your code, and, and this may be a question for Noah, actually. So I'm wondering, so you speak of sort of in the future, maybe we could label these things this, this way and do this, that, and the other thing, but I'm wondering, is there something that you would hope that someone would take your code and um, and do with it? Is there a way that you would like to see it expanded? We do have a lot of very uh, smart technologists who listen. I wondered if there was anything, uh, if you had a I'm really request. happy you asked this because Noah is uh, probably one of the, not I said one of, but he is the smartest coder I know, uh, by, bar none. So I, I would be happy to let Noah take that question. Yeah, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the whole point of putting it out into the public is for people to do effectively whatever they want with it, uh, assuming they're doing it the public good. My my personal hope is that uh, people take the code and they make it better. They make it more efficient. It will allow people to generate uh, a larger set of melodies potentially than we did. Um, 
you know, if somebody was able to take whatever we did, we did 67.8-ish billion melodies and take that and expand it, uh, I would love that. We have, um, we have some plans ourselves to add functionality, for example, to be able to generate rhythmic variations in addition to pitch variations um, and expand the data sets that, that we're generating. Um, and all of that development is happening on GitHub. Um, it's been really nice to see some of the people engage with our project on GitHub. So um, in short, you know, we have some stuff that we're working on to try to expand the, the functionality available to people. And um, if people want to help with that, I would absolutely love that. Well, that's great. Well, we'll be sure and post your GitHub link then too. Yeah. yeah, and that's and to add on to what Noah just said, I, from the beginning of our project, as we were sitting on a, a client's, uh, uh, near a client's uh, uh, location, we had really always hoped that this would be something that would go beyond us to be able to um, motivate people to be able to um, rally them around what we think is a big problem in songwriters and being able to uh, help songwriters that feel like they have targets on their back. So that to the extent we can get your listeners uh, that are technically inclined to be able to fight this good fight with us, um, we would love for you to be able to build uh, upon what we've done and be able to work with us to make something even better. Boy, there's uh, more questions jump at me. One, just as a parenthetical remark, is there are things falling into the public domain or aging into it, I suppose. Uh, what is that period? Like 50 years, 100 years? Uh, well, it depends uh, on when the, the work was created. Uh, if something yeah. were created today, it would be uh, for a human author, life of the author plus 95 years, or for yeah. a corporate author, uh, you know, almost 100 years after creation. Um, wow. But depending, you know, if it was made, in, uh, so generally, you know, things falling into the public main, domain today were from the 1920s. Yeah, okay. So um, th that's one thing. Another thing is you mentioned in your talk that, um, that SoundCloud is seeing 50 million new songs per year. Wow. Um, that's that's just songs that that's just like podcasts like ours or some other thing that's been put into SoundCloud or you know it's a good question. So the they they have f the number I saw was five five hundred or fifty million songs per year, and uh, I don't know if the the person collecting that data was uh, using files as a as a substitute for songs. Uh, so I don't know whether it's fifty million files or fifty million songs, um, but. And in a lot of the songs, say, you know, they're all 50, you know, for example, if those were all five, 50 million songs, of course, some of those are going to be co uh, uh, cover songs. Uh, they're not all right, going to be yeah, original songs. Yeah. So there is some subset of 50 million. I don't know how large that is, but some subset of new songs that are being put into the world every year. Uh, but even a subset of 50 million is a pretty large one. So uh, the point in my talk is that there's... Uh, we're running out of open spaces, uh, and uh, each one of those songs probably is infringing upon, uh, unknowingly infringing upon any number of other songs, um, even if that songwriter has never heard the other song before. So this is a, a relatively new thing. I think your your talk went up like on the 30th. It was January, wasn't it, or something? That's like right, that? January 30th. Yeah, so it's uh, been about three weeks now. So what's the what's the response been so far? I mean, I, I, it's still fairly new, and I'm... You know, where, where's the stand so far? Uh, so far, it's uh, been overwhelmingly positive. I, I think Noah and I have been pleasantly surprised at how many uh, people uh, this is resonating in a positive way. Uh, and we've always thought that it should be a positive response because songwriters are not only getting sued all the time. Well, songwriters are not only suing, but they're also getting sued. Uh, I often make the reference that this is a circular firing squad. A uh, copyright lawyer named uh, Howard Knopf, at least uh, the first, he's the first I'd heard of it. But the fact that, you know, you might be suing as a songwriter today, 
but you might get sued tomorrow uh, for something that you may have accidentally infringed. So, um, so songwriters in general, um, I, I think, are aware of b- being on both sides of the gun, if you will. And so uh, I think because of that, uh, they've resonated pretty strongly saying that the, the downside of saying melody equals fact equals uncopyrightable, um, that that downside of maybe not being able to sue over melody is outweighed by the upside of not being sued over something you've never heard or heard about and forgotten. I would imagine, and I don't know, because I'm not, I'm not only not a music, uh, lawyer, I'm not a musician. I know something about music, but I'm not a musician. Um, uh, I'm like the guy that bring, you can bring in with a tambourine or something like that. You know, I can do that. Uh, but I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, the, the, the fantasy I have here is that, you know, here's a, an ambitious um, songwriter, you know, who might be actually be thinking, Oh my God! I don't want this to get too popular because suddenly I'm I've got a target on my back. Like the the bet, and or if somebody's already successful, like a like a Taylor Swift, you know, so you know they're a target. Like George, obviously George uh, Harrison was a target. That was a gotcha of some sort, right? Let's get a few more bucks out of this old song that we had. Um, and, and I mean, if you could do anything to to, to stop that, that'd be fabulous. And by the way, I think it's great. So I give you positive feedback. On- sure, sure. And uh, I think that's, uh, that is exactly right to what you said that, you know, I as a songwriter am probably fine until I get too popular and then I have a target on my back. And so, uh, and so then you think about how this plays out as a litigation uh, element. And I mentioned this in the talk, but there's, uh, you know, almost all of these cases settle before they even get to court. Uh, it happens mm-hmm. that uh, a plaintiff's uh, lawyer sends something to the songwriter that has just made it big, saying, hey, your song sounds a lot like my client's song, make us a co-songwriter. And mm-hmm. if you're an up-and-coming artist, that this maybe is your first, first hit, um, you're in an untenable position because you're faced with you know, the average legal fees uh, for defending uh, what would need to be defended to say, I've never heard this song before, costs between 500000 and $2 million. Uh, musicians don't make that much money these days. And so if you're facing down the barrel of a cease and desist letter from this uh, lawyer, uh, am I going to roll over and make them a co-songwriter? Or am I going to spend the 500 to $2 million in legal fees to fight something where in the end, I win only if I prove a negative, if I say that I've never mm. heard something before in my life. Um, yeah. so, so it's not surprising that almost all of these cases end before a complaint even gets filed in court. Um, so, uh, you know, people have some negative feedback that we received is, you know, this doesn't really happen very often. It only happens to the Katy Perry's or it only happens to the Coldplay's or the Satriani's or uh, to, uh, you know, the big people. I would respond, no, those are the ones you hear about because the Katy Perry's have the money to be able to fight back and say, we've never heard your song before. Um, Almost all of the other cases settle right away because there's not enough money on the song to make it worthwhile to fight. And I'm I'm not, uh, I don't have any knowledge about the, um, the Tom Petty and Sam Smith case. Um, but I, I would speculate, and this is pure speculation, that um, if I were Sam Smith, I would do that math in my head. And it's not surprising that he did make Tom Petty a co-songwriter, because there's really no um, reasonable way to be able to defend against that, as Katy Perry found out. So, so, so I have the facts written on that. Uh, uh, Tom Petty got in touch with Sam Smith, or vice versa, which, which was, who came first and who came second? And, yeah. Uh, boy. Sorry about that. No worries. That was a call uh, yes. from my usual correspondent. Scam likely, it said. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard from that guy. You don't want to take yeah, that call. I know. I don't want to talk to that. <laughs> uh, 
So the, the Tom Petty, Sam Smith, uh, I only know through reporting. Uh, so this is only, this is not firsthand knowledge. This is only what reporting I've read. But what I've read uh, reportedly is that uh, Tom Petty in the 1980s had a song called Won't Back Down, No, I Won't Back Down. Uh, fast forward to 20, I want to say 2015, Sam Smith, a uh, 22-year-old at the time, had Stay With Me, Won't You Stay With Me. So Tom Petty, who uh, you know, had, had this hit for 30 years, allegedly reached out to Sam Smith saying, uh, hey, uh, you, you copied my song. I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but it sounds like my song. Um, and again, reportedly, Sam Smith reportedly said, I've never heard your song before in my life. Uh, that song was written before I was born. Uh, there's no way that I could have uh, copied you because I've never heard it before. Um, so uh, then uh, it's not... Uh, it's all public knowledge that Sam Smith made Tom Petty a co-songwriter and they resolved their differences. Mm -hmm. uh, therefore, uh, uh, half or whatever percentage that they worked out, part of Sam Smith's royalties for that song went to Tom Petty. Um, so, uh, you know, in my perspective, Sam Smith rolled over um, because, you know, and if I were Sam Smith, uh, I would have rolled over too because it wouldn't be worth spending the 500000 to $2 million to roll the dice yeah. to prove a negative. And especially if uh, Tom... Petty had that kind of money and he didn't. Yeah. That's right. And, and he has a big label behind him. And I'm a 22-year-old guy who uh, just, just started to make it big and I don't want this as a distraction. And by the way, I want to make it big in my label. So am I going to want to upset the label that Tom Smith is with and show myself being a troublemaker? So how... I, so part of the way I see you in the middle of, both you guys in the middle of, and really highlighting is that we're we're moving from a world where uh, the physical world, right, with, that we've had for the duration, and a digital world. We're digital beings along with physical beings. And um, as Marshall McLuhan said in 1980 or so, uh, when he saw computers coming along, that this is perfect memory. This is that's what computers are about. They're about memory, and and that everybody can have some, and. How, how the hell does copyright law survive in that, for the, for at least respecting this kind of thing? Um, I, and, and, and how will it change? In other words, if you're, let's say if you're looking for a law to change, you're, you know, maybe even you have a, um, a legislative or regulatory role now, what would you do? What, where does that go? I think that uh, one thing that I would say is to be able to say, First, we as a society should look at music and say, what is it about music that makes it truly unique that should be something that only one person should have to themselves for their life plus 95 years after they die? Yeah. Uh, and what are, what, are the, what are the aspects that we want to give to that one person for that monopoly? And what are the aspects that we want to say, okay, this person did this thing, but that's just part of the musical uh, periodic table of elements. Everyone has to use this scale uh, in the diatonic scale. Therefore, we don't want to give someone a, a monopoly in that scale. So to your question, I think that we have shown mathematically that there is, we have essentially brute forced all of the elements of music, that at least melodic elements of music, and really forced the question as to uh, what, whether those melodic elements are something we want to lock up with some one person for 95 years, one life of the author plus 95 years, or that's something we want to be uh, available for everyone to be able to build upon as we have been for millennia. 
Um, we've not sued each other as songwriters for millennia. We've only sued each other as songwriters for the last hundred years or so. Um, because before that, minstrels, uh, you know, borrowed a look here. Uh, you know, Beethoven, Mozart borrowed looks from their contemporaries. Um, music has always been a sharing culture. Uh, and, you know, there's, uh, you would make a reference to somebody else as a wink and a nod. Um, but here, if you make a reference to somebody else, you get dinged for $2.8 million. Uh, so I think that, you know, we need to think as a society whether those melodic elements, which we, Noah and I, have shown are facts, are those elements that are, should be free for people to take and the elements that are copyrightable, that are really something we want to monopolize, are the things that make us human. The things that, you know, the, the sigh in my voice, the, the lilt that I have at the end of this phrase. These are, these are things that machines can't do. So um, Noah and I say, leave to the machines, what are the machines? And leave to the humans and the copyright, the things that are truly human. I'm wondering if, I mean, I would like to, I mean, speaking as an individual, um, and one without a, a horse in this race, uh, if it is one, if that metaphor works, just push a magic button right now and say, you know what, it is the periodic table. Game over. We're going to start anew here. You know, in the, the world of all melodies has always been essentially public domain. We propertize those, and um, uh, under an old uh, print-based regime, uh, and that's obsolete now, and we're going to start over and make your money some other way, rather than setting landmines under every possible thing a future uh, songwriter and musician can do. And, and a, a reason I, I think a case can be made on that is there's another argument going on right now, and you might want to take a look at it if you're not already on top of it, which is about propertizing data. There are a lot of people out there that are saying at the moment, um, hey, look, uh, the big bad companies are taking my data all the time. Facebook's got my data. Every, every publisher's website that I go to is, is sticking third-party trackers into my browser, and that's my data going out there, and that's really my data, and I don't want other people to have Oh, Or better yet, you know what? You're in, a, you're in a business with this data. I want a piece of that, and that invites propertizing it. And the heavy thinkers I know on this, which are, really aren't that heavy, they tend to be in their 20s and 30s, but they're, <laughs> but they're, but they're original on this, are, are, are busy saying that propertizing data is like propertizing you know, air or sunlight or something else like that. It doesn't make any sense what, at all. It is, it is mathematics. I mean, that's basically the case that they're making, is that it's just ones and zeros, guys. Uh, you can't propertize that. Um, if you put it in a container, you can. But an interesting thing about music is that, and, and of course, people hearing this will be able to see it, but I'm seeing you're at the room you're in, and it, you have this wonderful pyramid behind you, uh, this is Damien, of uh, what looks like, it's at least, at least it's high enough for vinyl and the bottom shelves, and then CDs, and then at the top, which I can't see, is, is essentially nothing, <laughs> right? It's just data, right? I mean, it could be nothing, at least symbolically, right? There you go. Um, you know, it's more CDs. <laughs> more CDs. I, yeah. I've, uh, I've over a thousand. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I've, but, throughout you know, my life, I spent a lot of money on on plastic discs that don't right. have value and, these days. And so, and so, but the container business. I mean, we we had ways of containerizing um, music, and you bought the containers. You know, when I was a kid, we bought, you know, first seventy eights and then LPs and and forty fives, and then uh, cassettes and CDs, and then you know, spent money on Apple, but now we just subscribe to Spotify and we get the entire library of the world for, you know, 10 bucks a month or something like that. Um, 
And as you know, when the lists were both on, that there are a lot of people who are already in that business that are terribly upset about that because they're not getting the annuities or whatever it was they used to get. Um, they want to keep it propertized. And I think it's, it's impossible in a digital world in the long run. And how do, we, how do we normalize to a digital world as well as a physical one where every medium you can name has been subsumed into it? That, that's, a, that's a really good question. So I, I will say I have a couple of responses to that. Uh, and the first response is, um, you know, some have accused us of being copyright nihilists, uh, saying, you know, let's just you know, get rid of the copyright system for music altogether and, uh, and start afresh. And I, I would argue that at least I, I'm not going to speak for Noah, at least I am not a copyright nihilist, because I think that there is value of a combination of the elements that we call music. So one of the elements is melody, as we've been talking about, um, but there's all sorts of other elements like melody, plus lyrics, plus, uh, you know, harmony, plus rhythm, and all these things uh, put together are, you know, and then you have the personality, you know, you have the lead yeah. singer that can sing right. uh, yeah. like nobody else, and you have that guitar player that can just wail, right? Uh, and so all of those things in conjunction are what makes hearts sing. Uh, the things that makes hearts sing is not the sequence of pitches that Noah and I have mathematically right. brute forced uh, with a computer. Uh, so we, I, I think that, you know, rather than wiping copyright out altogether, uh, which is maybe what some might argue, I'd say, no, we need copyright to be able to protect the thing that makes hearts sing. That is the, the whole package, everything yeah, altogether. Yeah. So if somebody steals uh, my song, uh, not just the melody of my song, which is just one of those aspects, but the entire song, yeah, I think that he should have, some, he or she, she should have some recourse. Somebody stole my song, the whole thing. Or maybe, you know, to the extent that uh, they didn't license it the way that they should have. They, yeah, go mm -hmm. after them, right? Uh, so I, I would say that copyright has its place for protecting the things that are really making hearts sing. Uh, and the mathematical, uh, you know, melodies are not amongst those things. So I would say that's thing number one. And thing number two that uh, you, what you just said made me think of is smarter people than I that are really close to the music industry have uh, made the point that we used to sell widgets. You know, we used to sell CDs before that, 8-tracks before that, uh, LPs, and now I guess currently LPs again. Uh, but uh, the, the physical thing was what we've made money on. But tomorrow, what the thing we should make money on is what makes people gather in one space and be able to get excited about a thing. Uh, you know, what makes people go to a show? What makes people send a link to a band uh, that they just heard and really makes them really excited? That kind of communal experience is really what we, uh, as a music industry, have been selling forever. Uh, but that communal experience was just shoved in a medium that was plastic. Uh, but today, right. maybe, that, uh, maybe that digits is the being able to take the social aspect of what we do and be able to maybe monetize that social aspect. And uh, this now I'm getting into a realm that might uh, raise the antenna of some of your people. Uh, but I would say that, you know, if the music industry is to survive and if we are to uh, pay songwriters for the value that makes hearts sing, um, where's that money going to come from? And I, I think that's a good question. Uh, and uh, maybe one answer to that question might be, if I, as a songwriter, can motivate all of my fans to go and go to a show, um, and maybe my fans are also fans of this store, or also fans of this shoe company, or fans of this whatever, um, there's value in them being motivated. And uh, maybe the songwriter doesn't have to say, hey, fans, go buy these shoes, right? That would be selling out, and nobody would want to do that. But maybe on the back end, that songwriter can get paid to be able to uh, and I, I'm going to sound crass here, but be able to show 
that my fans also like these other things. And there's values to that shoe company to know that my fans also like them. Um, so that's, that's a, a, again, a, a very, I think, controversial thing that music should be pure and not uh, be sullied with uh, commerce. But maybe that's one way to move from a, we're selling widgets that are plastic to we're selling experiences that people get excited about. That's a really good uh, final line there. That's a pull quote. Um, it's interesting on, on the emotional side, I was thinking that, I mean, not long before this, I got an email from somewhere, one of the too many lists I'm on that um, I'm in New York City and Pearl Jam is gonna be performing at the Apollo, which is a few blocks south of where I am here. And I immediately wanted to jump on that and thought it's probably already sold out. Probably is actually, you know, but, but that's an emotional thing, right? And, and that's performance. It's not, uh, I, I had a whole list of things that just came to my head, you know, besides melody, the hook, motif, key, chords, harmony, chorus, bridge, structure, you know, and none of that is what music's about. You know, music is about, um, it, it's people connecting with people, you know, and, and it's emotional, you know, if without emotion, there is no music, right? And it's, um, I mean, it's a wonderful um, thing on, uh, on Twitter early of, earlier of a guy who, who plays the Moonlight Sonata for an elephant, an aged elephant that was used as a, as a pack horse, essentially, and he's like 68 years old and is clearly responding emotionally to the music. You know, it probably makes a difference that this guy has played it for him like a hundred times, you know, and it's about his emotional connection with the guy. Nonetheless, it's around music. You know, it's making sounds the elephant hears and, and responds positively to. So that's, that's one thing. And, I, and it's, an, you know, I don't know how one, I mean, that's, that's so deeply human that, you know, to me the challenge is, how do we get that deeply human stuff to operate in the digital world where it's too easy to um, conceive of it almost as, as, as at the atomic level, right? You know, I mean, there, even with the things I mentioned, the, the different various parts of music, it's still like looking at a human being as it's just a skeleton or just a circulatory system or, or it's reductive, right? Or, uh, and, and we don't want that. We don't want that for music. We want, we want something that actually works and connects for us. And we're kind of that's at zero. I mean, that's part of my, one of my theories uh, is that uh, in, the, in the fullness of time, we've, in the, we've been in a digital world basically for one generation, like since 1995, you know, which is before my last adult child was born. But that was, you know, about it. That's nothing in the history of, of business and the history of lots of things. It's pretty, it's pretty young. So I'm very enthused about what you guys are doing, uh, and I, I hope it hope it succeeds. And I, you know, I I I want to take an advocate's position on this. I think it's just really interesting, and I, I think it's it'll be fun to lay it on top of the conversations that happen now, close to 20 years ago, maybe more than 20 years ago. Uh, Creative Commons was founded by Larry Lessig and Aaron Swartz and some others who are people I know, um, and and that was just that was not. I don't think he expected it to be as big a thing as it was. Yeah, I've, I've been a fan of Larry Lessig since my first year of law school uh, when I read uh, Code and Other Laws of the Cyberspace. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, that, that was a formative work. Uh, I went to law school to be an entertainment lawyer, to be, represent artists wow. in, in music. And that was in 19, I started in 1999, uh, of course, not knowing that the music industry would go through such dramatic changes uh, to the present. 
Uh, so I did my law review article on Napster and other peer-to-peer systems, wow. uh, and uh, which was just going on at the time, and they were getting sued out of existence. Uh, so, anyways, I've been a huge fan of Larry Lessig, and I've been following his career and uh, you know the, his loss with the um, Copyright Extension Act, uh, yeah. and Sonny Bono could say Extension Act. It was it was a travesty, and so I I I, I, I think uh, yeah. my lucky star is that uh, Larry Lessig exists and that he's doing the cool things that he's doing uh, now more with politics, but uh, but that he did with copyright. I mean, there was an upside for him losing Eldred versus Ashcroft, right? That's right. That was, that was the case that he lost seven to two. That's right. In the Supreme Court. Um, and I think he expected to win. I would have hoped he would have won because it was an obvious case. I mean, right. it's even in the Constitution, 14 years. <laughs> you know, like, That's right. It's think, perpetuity on the payment plan. The originalists would be uh, on top of that, but they weren't. And, um, but thanks to that, he, he changed in practice what he couldn't change in law. And that was just a huge thing. Do you know Larry by any chance? I, I met him once uh, about four years ago, and I, I said to him uh, essentially what I just told you, that it was a travesty what happened to him and that I was, uh, I was thrilled that he's fighting the good fight and that I built my legal career on his idea that legal code is uh, at least analogous to uh, computer code, uh, that in, in yeah. theory one should be able to code uh, the laws in the way that they, you code computers. And so um, in my... My current day job, which we haven't talked about, is essentially doing that, being able to extract from the law, both the mm-hmm. statutory and regulatory law, as well as the case law, um, extracting the things that matter and maybe make a computational version of the law in the future. Uh, but that's oh, wow. all thanks to Larry Lessig. Sometimes ideas like take, take years or decades to, to find their time. You know, I mean, Tim Berners-Lee invented the, the web with HTML and HTTP in 1989. It wasn't until Mark Andreessen and friends created the graphical browser five years later. And then a year after that, when the NSF net finally shut down the only subnet within the internet that forbid commercial activity, that we got the web we have now. And that was to some degree a lucky accident, but it was probably something that had to happen eventually, but it had to find its time. And um, so my project, Project VRM at the Berkman Center, Berkman Klein Center now at Harvard, um, came up with an idea in 06, which is, which is a monetization idea. And the idea was, I'm going to give a penny to every song that I hear. If I'm listening, I just give a penny every time. Even though I already own the album uh, or whatever, uh, I think I, I value that. And I'm just, I'm just going to do that. And, and we call that system Emancipay. And it would apply to published works too, where the whole idea was just lowering to zero or as close to zero as possible, the threshold of compensation, the threshold of, 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 you know, basically making, moving the tip jar from, from gravy to the meat, like it could become the meat rather than the gravy and, uh, or the cake rather than the icing. And um, at that time we couldn't imagine it. I mean, we, we, we could have, we could imagine that that's an ideal but, but now, I mean, it's possible. I, 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 Apple bought Shazam, but Shazam has been able to do this. Shazam is the oldest app on phones. It was on Nokia's in the 90s, right? You know, where you, you hold the thing in front of the speaker and it recognizes the, the song. And uh, in a similar way with podcasts, I would like somebody to be able to say, I, I like that podcast, you know, check here. And that was called Emancipate. And, and, but suddenly we can imagine that. And part of the context for what you're doing that, that's so vivid to me is that we're almost at a point now where 
the absurdity of the old regime is so obvious and the untenability of of its methods are so so obvious um and impossible really uh now we have to start thinking anew about what do we scaffold up here you know so it occurs to me that even if if by putting this stuff in the public domain uh you've appeared to have taken the monetization uh matter off the table it might make it easier to put a new one on there you know that there may be other ways of monetizing you know that have to do with I just like those guys. I mean, so th there's a podcast I listen to, and this is interesting, um, uh, the Bill Simmons podcast. I'm a sports freak, and uh, Bill Simmons has something called The Ringer. He left ESPN in, a, in some big fallout a few years ago and started The Ringer, and it's a bunch of podcasts that just, by the way, got sold for $250 million to Spotify, which, mm. by the way, is more than you could sell the entire AM band in New York for right now, right? So, and maybe right. FM band as well. Um, because you know the values are, are are shifting. Well, he opens and closes his podcast with with a few bars of of two different Pearl Jam songs, which, by the way, has rekindled my interest in Pearl Jam, which is why I mentioned that earlier. Like, oh yeah, them, right? Okay, what do they do? Oh wow, I like that one. I didn't even know the name of it, right? You know, and um, similarly, we happened to hold the rights, which took a hard it was hard for somebody to do for us to a song by the best guitarist who ever lived, who's, who's Danny Gatton, and that's their bumper music. And Danny Gatton was, look him up, unreal, just unreal. Um, and, and Danny Gatton, by the way, there's a, a movie, a, a documentary on Danny who um, died uh, quite a few, in the early 90s, but um, uh, called the, the Humbler, because he humbled everybody else that he, that he, he could also play. Um, that isn't finished. And I don't know why it's not finished. It's, it looks like it, the trailer looks great. I would like to, every single time somebody hears our bumper music and likes it, throw some money at the movie. Or if they throw it to us, we could reroute it toward paying for that documentary. And just having some sort of flow of goodwill that has small amounts of money that are trivial enough. And, and some context for that. And I don't want to hog the stage here, but it's, it's interesting because at Linux Journal, back in the early aughts, I covered as an editor there, like a blanket, what was going on with the DMCA and with, um, uh, with what was happening with streaming. Because streaming was very rare back then. It was, there were a few independent stations, mostly college stations, and people are running their own streams. And, and, and there was a great big fight going on between them and the record industry and Jack Valenti and all of them because they just didn't want that to happen at all. They didn't want anybody to stream music. Um, and, you know, and, and there was a settlement there with the copyright royalty board and all that. Uh, but, I, but nobody could imagine back then a, a way to monetize it, right? And I, I think we can start imagining that now. So that's basically the, my summary yeah. remark about that. And there's some people that are chasing the the idea of being able to track rights, and you know I can track through the ether where my song is played, when it was played, and then right. be able to essentially monetize through that. Um, I think it's a, a really important goal. Um, how use uh, how effective it will be, I, I think remains to be seen, uh, because as you said earlier in the interview, that uh, there. Are, uh, data is just you know flowing freely, and so being able to track where any one yeah. piece of data flows and how it flows and through whom it flows and who is actually consuming that flow um, 
being able to track all those data points and then push money through that path that has been created, uh, that's a really hard technical solve, uh, problem to solve. Uh, and uh, that's not even talking about the rights and licensing problems uh, that would have to be resolved too. Yeah. So we can beat all this stuff, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's to me, that's the big thing. I mean, you've, you've hit a push button that I think can change everything. And that's really cool. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's, I, I think that, uh, you know, ours is just one piece in a larger copyright morass and copyright puzzle. Um, but if we are able to push the needle a little bit with our one piece, I think I'd be very grateful. Are there any musicians that you've, you've contacted or have contacted you on this to say they'd like to weigh in on this or weigh in behind it or put a shoulder to the wheel, whatever the right metaphor might be? You know, strangely, uh, so lots of amateur musicians, yes. Uh, I would say no big name musicians. And I, I would guess that there's a, a timidity there uh, because, you know, they don't want to be, all, you know, it's hard as a musician to say that copyright laws should be, and weakened is the wrong word, but changed, all right? So to be able to say that melody might be fact that is not copyrightable. Um, you know, as a musician and songwriter, I might think, well, you're taking an arrow out of my quiver. Uh, and so uh, even though I know that that, uh, that same arrow could be used to shoot me, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, yeah. I, maybe I want to keep that arrow in my quiver just in case I need to shoot somebody else. Um, so I think for that reason, no musician has reached out to us yet. Um, but I, I would guess that many of them are maybe cheering on the sidelines, uh, being able to think, yeah. you know, anything that I can keep from having a target on my back uh, for a song I may have heard 20 years ago um, is all the better. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Well, you're at the beginning of something here, which is which is great. You know, yeah, it's it true. Feels, it feels a lot to me like um, like it did when when Larry Lessig said to me, and he, you know, both Catherine and I, for context, were with Linux Journal, and he was on our advisory board for a while. And uh, and right after he'd lost the the case, he said, "We're doing this thing called Creative Commons." You know, like, but it was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put a lemonade stand out. I mean, it's not like it was that big a deal. I think he knew it was a big deal, but it was, I'm not sure he knew how big that it was going to be or how important it was going to be. Or I think it takes somebody, on it. Yeah. yeah, it takes somebody like Larry Lessig to conceive of such a thing because uh, he's putting through a, a contractual lens, something that had not been contractually seen before, right? To be able to think that, um, you know, you have a copyright before Creative Commons, before Larry Lessig, uh, you had copyright, therefore you sued people if they violated the copyright. And if you wanted to uh, give your work to somebody, you would license that work to them on a one-to-one basis. Uh, but the paradigm shift that he conceived of was, yeah, I'm not going to do it on a one-to-one basis. I'm going to do it on a one-to-the-world basis yeah, uh, through yeah. contract, which is something that con- you know, copyright understands cop- uh, contracts. Uh, so to be able to say one-to-one uh, to a one-to-everyone, that was a huge paradigm shift that was not obvious to everybody, uh, but uh, was obvious to Larry Lessing. Yeah, yeah. That was well, great. I think you might be onto something similar. I think this is a... I mean, the topic, music is so relatable. It's such a relatable medium to, for anybody to really, um, you know, identify with these copyright issues and, and, and larger issues that maybe be, a, you know, a software engineer and working on open source. Like, we talk about these things a lot. This is kind of part of our, our, our we live and breathe it. But, but I think when you, when you translate, you know, legalese and, and, and these, you know the culture of, of collaboration into something so relatable to everyone is music i think i think you 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 spread the word on a level that that you know was maybe not possible through other media i don't know 
Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, music is something that uh, you don't have to be an expert in to enjoy. And so I think that one of the reasons this has uh, kind of gained some traction, as you say, is because um, everyone listens to music or almost everyone listens to music. Uh, and the Venn diagram that I have in the talk is you have music and then you have other people that are lawyers. Lawyers are really excited about this. And then you have technologists and technologists are really excited about this. So you're reaching these dis different spheres of people that are all interested in the topic from a different angle. And so I think that, uh, and, you know, being able to maybe look at music in a way that you haven't thought of in the past is kind of exciting to be able to think, you know, this thing that I, I thought I knew, maybe I don't know it as well as I thought I did. And to be able to look at the world in uh, a bit of a different uh, sphere uh, and perspective is, uh, is something that uh, I'm really excited about sharing with people. And I'm really thrilled that you guys have uh, given me a platform and know a, a platform to be able to talk to more people about. Yeah. Maybe I'll ask you a question, Noah. What, uh, so if, if somebody's really into coding, somebody says, yeah, I really want to help these guys, uh, what, what do you think is the best way that they can do that? Uh, the easiest way to get started helping out with the technical part of it is to open up a GitHub issue. Uh, if people have good ideas, then we obviously review all issues. Um, if you want to write some of the code yourself, please open up a, a pull request, a PR. There's someone that's already done that with some helpful, you know, small changes um, just for, you know, code, read code readability and such. So if you want to submit a PR, happy to review it. I can't promise the, I'm not going to promise any SLA on when I'll get to it, um, but it will be reviewed and, and if it's good, merged. Um, so I appreciate any of that. There's one thing also that I wanted to add uh, in an earlier discussion you're having about like, what now, essentially. Yeah. Right. Um, there's one point that I continue to make to people because I think one of the common rebuttals to our project people have said is, so are you saying that people shouldn't pay royalties if they copy their music? And I, I, at the risk of, of beating a dead horse here, because uh, Damien's made this point, um, we're not telling people that they shouldn't have the right, the copyright to the music they make. We're just saying that we should be a bit more selective about the types of things that people should be able to own about the music that they create. And I would encourage any artist who's making music today to think about um, when they're collecting royalties on a song, what are they collecting royalties on? Right? Are they collecting royalties on the melody they made? Or are they collecting royalties on the number of other elements that they've also probably unwittingly copyrighted when they submitted their entire work? for copyright. Um, I, I would argue that if, if you take a step back and think about it, you're probably not making whatever you make per year on the music you make just on the melodies alone. And if yeah. you are, then you're probably asymptotically approaching becoming a melody troll, which I'm not sure how much sympathy I'm going to have for you there. So. I love that asymptotically approaching becoming a melody troll. That's good. Noah has a way with both code and words that I yeah. am always in awe of. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing that you have a very technical audience, um, please do take him up on his offer. Of, of, uh, you know, he is uh, a, not only a, a good programmer, but a good human being and a good collaborator where he um, will think more quickly than anyone in the room with him and be able to say yes and on top of any collaborator wow. uh, in the sphere uh, that he works with. So I will say to any of your technically inclined audience members, uh, please do reach out to us if you're integrated, uh, if you're interested in, in integrating with us and uh, collaborating on this project because we would love to have your help. Well, I think it's a good place to conclude. Um, I think so too.
has been a really great conversation and I'm sure we'll have some more. Um, this is, this is terrific. And well, thank you so much for luck with that. it. Yes, indeed. Great. Well, it's been great having you on the show and, uh, let's see how it goes. All right. Thank you very much for having us on. We really great for the opportunity.